This podcast is brought to you by Nesta, the UK's Innovation Foundation, and was recorded at FutureFest, our weekend festival of ideas. Eating, drinking, and getting high. This is the FutureFest podcast. I'm Emily Elias, and on the menu, we're asking, what will we be consuming in the future? On this episode... Can of Coke and a bag of crisps on a train platform, but that's going to change and we're going to get more advanced. Food futurologist Dr. Morgane Gay tells us about the rise of the vending machines. Mixologist Ryan Chaden serves the alcohol menu of the future, and journalist Johan Hari looks at where the war on drugs is heading. We've got the model that doesn't work, the model we've tried for a hundred years and we've spent a fortune on, and it's based on a fantasy. And this time around, let's start with what we eat. Food has come a long way in the last few decades. I mean, think about it. 60 years ago, the UK was on rations. Now you can walk into any store and buy whatever your heart desires. Food futurologist Morgane Gay's job is to figure out which direction food trends are heading. And she says the one thing to look out for in the future, vending machines. Vending machines are going to be huge, and we're really quite behind in this, but there's some fantastic things happening around the world in vending. I think really now we're at that time where time is premium, and everybody wants something all the time. It's no longer, you know, when the shops close, people are still wanting to go and buy things. We're eating more meals more often, and um, we're, we're eating on the go. We're having probably five to six, seven meals a day now, most people who are under 50. So, so vending machines really address uh, that, that issue that we've got, especially in a busy city. So some good examples of that, and one guy here, this French guy uh, in the middle, he had a, a bakery and people were coming for these fresh baguettes at six in the morning and knocking on his door. So he developed this vending machine which, where he par-cooked his baguettes and then they would put the money in the vending machine and it would just finish off the cooking for the consumer. So he could do his job, they still got fresh bread, but the vending machine delivered the last bit and he could have an hour in bed a bit longer. So, so people are using vending in, a real, in an artisan way, it's not just something that's high-tech. Great uh, examples, uh, there have been lots of uh, hot vending snacks in Amsterdam and Belgium for a long while, FIBO, but we haven't really got to the hot snack vending really in this country, we're still a can of Coke and a bag of crisps on a train platform, but that's going to change and we're going to get more advanced in that. We're seeing high-end hotels um, in, the bottom, in the bottom left there, high-end hotels are having these beautiful vending machines so that if people desperately need that special necklace or that pair of earrings they forgot that for the night out, they can get them in the hotel lobby. Other things that we're seeing, freshly grown herbs and vegetables in vending machines, so lots of different uses for vending. And then they're being used, we think it's a really good idea to put them in bus stops and bus shelters when people are, it's great for uh, business because people don't really have anything to do and it's a point of sale. So we're seeing milk being sold in, uh, in, in a vending machine in a bus stop. Lots of ways in which brands are using vending machines in order to promote their products. Um, and this, the cupcake ATM, which is fantastic on the bottom left, uh, this is in LA, and you just swipe your card just like you would an ATM machine, point to the picture that you want, it can be a gluten-free, sugar-free cupcake, and out it comes in 20 seconds, warm, beautiful, best thing you've ever tasted. So they're really, you know, they're really far ahead with that. So that's where we're going to, we're going to see lots of really interesting confectionery, lots of interesting cakes and, um, and snacks being delivered in a, in a more interesting way, I think. And while food futurologist Morgane Gay has been thinking about food, 
Mixologist Ryan Chaden is more concerned about what we'll be drinking. We caught up with him to get his vision of how we'll get boozy in the future and a few recipes. The idea is, in, in our presentation, is, is almost kind of a propaganda pitch from the government of the future. Hello, welcome to 2015. Congratulations! You are some of the first ever to be told of your democratically elected government's newest initiative. Drinks are always kind of perceived as the evil and cause of all of society's ills. Um, we've, we've looked at a slightly different view in the future where drinks have kind of really become quite a staple in people's diet and are actually a, a beneficial part of how they're maintaining their health and, and vigour. So what we're doing is, is presenting a series of drinks that showcase different, well, kind of facets of how alcohol actually can be beneficial if consumed in a kind of conscientious and, and obviously considered manner. Um, and also if it's, it's created with that idea in mind. So a series of drinks and a series of, of different ideas of, of how alcohol has partly been used within lots of different civilizations as a beneficial and, and healthy part of society and also how it can be a interesting delivery method for some of the nutrients in the future. Uh, so we're, 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 we're pitching it as the, the five drinks you need to be getting per week. So it hits Monday, it's your first day of the week and you need to prepare yourself. Uh, so we've created a vitamin enriched uh, blueberry and elderflower champagne. Um, and what it's done, we've, we've, firstly, we've taken two kind of fermented aspects. Um, fermented, fermented foods have long been used as a preservation in a lot of different societies, but also they provide a huge number of nutrients that you can't get through any other means. So we do a, a, a home fermented blueberry vinegar, and then we use that as the kind of souring base for a fermented drink on a whole. So it's, we enrich the drink with vitamins and minerals, and then we bottle carbonate it. So it's, it's, it's fermented in bottle like a champagne. So it creates a uh, degree of fizz, but also the, you, know, you get a microbial action in there as well. So you get all of the, the kind of resting on the lees and the, the, the tertiary flavors and, and nutrients that you'd find in that process. So it's a, it's a fizzy, slightly fresh and sharp um, champagne style drink. Tuesday is into the idea of balance. So we're looking at kind of the idea of like a microflora, your necessity of having uh, bacteria as part of your immune system. We're, we're doing a little bit of a send up on the idea that in the future there'll be no antibiotics left to be used. So we need to look after ourselves in a different aspect. So we've created a prebiotic uh, by making a buckwheat bourbon, uh, some raw honey and chicory. So the idea of setting up the nutrients so the beneficial bacteria can outcompete uh, anything else potentially pathogenic. Uh, and then we do a probiotic, unfiltered, uh, unpasteurized uh, wheat beer that we use a little bit of ginger in. So it's delicious and it's also a probiotic. And so having the two in conjunction, it's almost a bit like having your beer in your shot, uh, but it's good for you. Not that a beer in shot isn't, but you know, it's, it's extra good for you. Wednesday, we are going into the idea of antioxidants. Um, so looking at different delivery methods and how can we we get all those, you know, superfoods that people talk about into something that's quickly consumable with the, the added benefit of the alcohol helping things along the way. Uh, so we do a cultured tea uh, and we're using our own, we make an aquavit. So it's a, a, it's a combination of distillation and infusion uh, that's sweetened with a bit of Mirabal plum. So lots of high kind of like tannic qualities, lots of polyphenols, lots of things that are, are really good for kind of sweeping up all of the, the terrible things we put our bodies through. Uh, and delivered in a, a kind of a boosted manner through a little bit of fortification of alcohol.
Um, so by the time we hit Thursday, we're looking at fats. So again, another factor of our diets has often been demonized. Um, and we're looking at how previously fats were always seen as something negative and something to be reduced in our diet and looking at it as the opposite side. How can we get all the beneficial fats and all the crucial fats into our diet? Uh, so we've used pecorino cheese that we've washed with vodka. We use some full fat BioLive yogurt, uh, some pumpkin seeds, again, looking at different, different fats and different sources, and then avocado as well. Uh, so it sounds like something that's going to be really grotesque and, and curdled, and it ends up with something very, very clean with very actually kind of nuanced flavors and something that delivers all these amazing and crucial flat fats into your diet. And then by the time we hit Friday, um, we're on to the idea of kind of a bit of the socializing aspect, how crucial that is as, as part of your health as well, uh, and using the alcohol as a means of getting together. So it's a bottle cocktail that you can take and enjoy with your friends. So we're using plant-based protein and we're, we're mixing it with a cacao gin. So we use both the, the kind of flavor from the cacao nib and also the fats. Uh, we're using a wild yeast uh, to, to tie all the flavors together and using a little bit of peppermint. Um, so you end up with a little bottle of cocktail that's fresh, lovely kind of chocolatey, um, kind of slightly rich notes through with a bit of freshness of mint. From drinks to drugs, journalist Johan Hari has spent the last few years of his life trying to debunk the myths around the war on drugs. We chatted with him at FutureFest to get his take on where it's all heading. It's now 100 years since drugs were first banned, so this is a really good time to think about the future of drugs and the drug war. The science fiction writer William Gibson said, uh, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. There's the model that we've been trying for 100 years and spent a trillion dollars on so far, which is um, extreme prohibition. Um, I went in Arizona to a prison called Tent City, where the sheriff there has put a load of tents in the desert, and these women are made to go out on a chain gang wearing t-shirts saying I was a drug addict and made to dig graves. Um, I went out, I spent a couple of days with those women and you know we take these traumatized women and we humiliate and shame them. Uh, that's one model. Now it's tempting to think that that's like a freakish outlier but actually the model of what we do in most of the world is not that far off that. We cut addicts off, we give them criminal records that make it extremely hard for them to get jobs or ever work again in the legal economy. The other model, the polar opposite, is what's happened in Portugal. Uh, in the year 2000, Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in Europe. One percent of the population was addicted to heroin, which is kind of mind-blowing. And every year they tried the American way, more and more. They arrested more people, imprisoned more people, and every year the problem got worse. And one day the leader of the opposition and the prime minister got together and they basically said, look, we can't go on like this, what are we going to do? So they decided to set up a panel of scientists and doctors to figure out what would genuinely solve this problem. And the panel came back and it, after looking at all the evidence and it said decriminalise all drugs from cannabis to crack, but, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we used to spend on arresting and harassing and imprisoning drug users and spend it all on reconnecting them with society. So some of that was like rehab and psychological support, things we think of as treatment, and that has real value. But actually the biggest element was subsidised jobs and microloans for addicts. So say you used to be a mechanic, when you're ready, they'll go to a garage and they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages. Really simple. The goal was to make sure that every addict in Portugal had something to get out of bed for in the morning. And it's nearly 15 years since this program began, since this decriminalisation happened. And the results are in. 
Injecting drug use is down in Portugal by 50%, 50%. Overall addiction is down, overdose is massively down, um, HIV transmission among addicts is massively down. One of the ways you know it really works is I interviewed this guy called Juan Figuera, who was the top drug cop in Portugal, and he led the opposition to the decriminalisation at the time. And he said a lot of things that a lot of people listening to this will totally reasonably be thinking. And he said to me, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt ashamed that he'd spent 20 years arresting and harassing drug users. And he hoped the whole world followed Portugal's example. So in terms of these possible futures, you know, we've got the model that doesn't work, the model we've tried for 100 years and we've spent a fortune on and it's based on a fantasy. You know, the UN, the official UN drug war slogan is a drug-free world, we can do it. We can't even keep drugs out of prisons and we can got a walled perimeter, right? Um, and then there's the Portuguese model and the other models which have been experimented with legalisation from Switzerland to Colorado um, to Uruguay. And they are working incredibly well. We need to change how we think about addiction quite radically. And this is the thing that most surprised me when I was low about it. If you had said to me four years ago, say, what causes addiction? What causes heroin addiction? I would have looked at you like you were a little bit simple-minded. And I would have said, well, heroin causes heroin addiction. It's kind of obvious. We've been told this story for 100 years. That's just become part of our common sense. We think that if you, me, and the next 20 people to walk past us all used heroin together... On day 21, we'd all be heroin addicts because there are chemical hooks in heroin that our body would start to physically need. And that's what addiction is, right? First thing that alerted me to the fact that that may not be right is when I learned that if you or me step out of this interview now and get hit by a car and we both break our hips, God forbid, uh, we'll be taken to hospital. It's quite likely we'll be given a lot of diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's much stronger heroin than we would buy on the streets because it's medically pure, it's not screwed up by dealers. Anyone listening to this anywhere in the developed world, people near you are being given lots of heroin in hospital, often for quite long periods of time. If what we think about addiction is right, some of those people should be leaving hospital as drug addicts, right? They should be trying to score on the streets. You would have noticed your grandmother was not turned into a junkie by her hip operation, right? I didn't really know what to do with that when I learned it because it just seems so weird, it seems so contrary to what we're told. Until I interviewed a guy called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor in Vancouver and an incredible man, Bruce explained to me the idea of addiction we have comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. You get a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and one is water laced with heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself. So there you go. That's our story of addiction. Bruce comes along in the 70s and says, well, hang on a minute, we're putting the rat in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except use these drugs, let's do this differently. So Bruce built Rat Park. Rat Park is like heaven for rats, right? Anything a rat could want, it's got in Rat Park. It's got cheese and coloured balls and um, loads of friends. It can have loads of sex. And it's got both the water bottles, the drugged water and the normal water. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They hardly ever use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. This shows us that um, both the right-wing and the left-wing theories of addiction are wrong. The right-wing theory of addiction is, you know, you're a hedonist, you party too hard, you indulge yourself. The left-wing theory is your brain gets hijacked, you get taken over. Bruce says it's not your morality, it's not your brain, it's your cage. Addiction is an adaptation to your environment. Human beings have an innate need to bond and when we're happy and healthy we'll bond with the people around us and when we can't, because we're beaten down or traumatised or isolated, we will bond with something that gives us some sense of relief. Now that might be gambling, that might be pornography, that might be cocaine, but we are human beings and we will connect with something. 
And um, that really helps you to understand why what I saw in, in Arizona is so crazy, right? We take women who are addicted because they're isolated and we isolate them more. We make it impossible for them to get jobs. And then we're surprised they don't get better. Gabor Mate, a doctor in Vancouver, said to me something like, if we wanted to design a system that would make addiction worse, you would design the system we have now. And if you want to learn more, Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, is in stores now. Buy it wherever you buy your books. And that is it for this episode of the Future Fest podcast. This podcast featured music by Jazzar and Broke for Free. Future Fest is brought to you by Nesta, the independent innovation charity with a mission to help people and organizations bring great ideas to life. To join the conversation, go to the website nesta.org.uk and you will find a fine selection of videos, blogs, and everything to get you in the mood for the future. We'll be back next time as we peel back what exactly global futurism means. But until then, I'm Emily Elias. Goodbye.